Welcome to the 22 at the Lips podcast. If you're new here, if you've gotten lost along the way and you stumbled here, welcome to the podcast. This is the podcast from EMS providers and healthcare providers and people that are involved in this field in general and a variety of perspectives to fellow responders, fellow healthcare workers, dispatchers, fire, police, the bystander, civilian, whoever you are, you are welcome. We're glad you're here. Today, I have the special honor of having on. He is one of the OG guests that I had back before. Honestly, the podcast grew more than it, it did on my own. Thank you, Master Your Medics, Mr. Jeff Murphy. You're a real one. But um, I have with me James. It's spelled Boomhauer, but everyone calls him Boomer. If you want to kind of clarify that, my guy. Um, he is an incredible flight medic, obviously paramedic. He has the stay fit for duty line that he's going to talk about. Obviously, if you're watching the YouTube channel, I'm kind of a huge fan, but um, he'll address that. He's going to school and adding so many more credentials behind his last name that he already has. I'm a huge fan, but Boomer, if you want to tell the people who you are, what you stand for, go ahead, my guy. Alexis, thank you very much. That was a lovely intro. Um, as she said, my name is James Boomhauer. I go by Boomer. Uh, I run the Stay Fit for Duty platform, which is a mental health and suicide awareness advocacy platform. Our goal is really simple. Our goal is to ensure that our first responders and healthcare providers are treating their mental health and wellness with the same fire and tenacity uh, as the people and populations that they serve. Very good. And mental health is something that I feel like I harp on a lot on this podcast, but it's just, it's something that is so crucial to this field. As much as you need to study, as much as you need to know medications and treatments and pathophysiological diseases and whatnot, a big part of this field is also understanding your mental health, understanding your limits, understanding so much. And we'll talk about that. We'll get all of that. However, comma, Boomer, have a couple of rapid fire questions, little get to know you for the people. Are you ready? I'm ready. Let's do it. First one, favorite color and why? Oh, I'm a sucker for a solid dark blue, cobalt, navy, something in that family. Why? Why blue? Um, yeah. I think blue is always calming. It's a very like welcoming color. It's very uh, centering and grounding. Um, and I've just always been a sucker for like dark blues, purples. Like those have been my colors. I like how they look on cars. I like how they look in houses. I just, I like it. They're very versatile too. Like you can complement the color with a whole cascade of other colors. So it fits. Question number two. What is the most valuable lesson or lessons you've learned in your career? Nobody remembers the medicine. Everybody remembers how you made them feel. Partners, physicians, nurses, family, patients. 
we got to do the medicine right, of course. But what people remember at the end of the day is how you treated them and how you made them feel. It's a little deep. Um, no, that's good. And that's something that recently I had one of the higher ups tell me and my partner that like there was a patient that called and told us like they were impressed with us. They appreciated how much kindness we had towards them, blah, blah, blah. And like when me and my partner talked about the call over, I was like, man, I miss like two IV attempts, um, a couple of other things that I like after the call, I was kind of beat myself up about, but it's like, I mean, I hate to put it this way. Like the patient doesn't really know as long as it's some, it's not something egregious, as long as it's something that goes like outside of your protocols, et cetera, et cetera. Having that kindness, like you're talking about is so crucial to the patient care and having that like one thing that me and my partner strive for that calmness and that peace, because you can do so much more with the patient who's cooperative and like understands that you're empathizing with them versus like, you're just being rude to them, doing all the right things, dropping them off, being rude to even the ER staff. Anyways. Yeah. Very good lesson. <laughs> Sorry. I didn't mean to go down a rabbit hole. A little passionate. Last random fire question. What are two random facts about you? Just taught a class today, uh, a SISM class, and we ask uh, our students to say uh, uninteresting facts about themselves. And now it's getting thrown back at me. And, and um, for ages, I played both the acoustic and electric bass. I did that for almost 14 years, probably between the two. And uh, kind of alongside that, uh, all throughout high school, I was in the elite jazz band. Not just the jazz band, the elite jazz band. Elite jazz band. None of this low class stuff. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Only high standards. That's it. Well, Boomer, like I said earlier, it is an honor to have you on. You're one of my favorite people on this planet. I appreciate you. I met Boomer through a mutual friend when I was at kind of like a really low spot. And I reached out to him and I was like, man, like I need help. Like I, I don't have a therapist yet. I don't really know who to talk to. There's nobody that like specializes in first responder aspects and he was like, look, you need to talk to Boomer, you know, reach out to him, contact him, tell him what's going on. And it helped me tremendously. So 20 out of 10 recommend, but we'll get into our topics for today. So I kind of see in the questions and stuff, but in your words to go right out the gate, right out the gate, what is mental resiliency? First of all, thank you. That was a very kind primer of how we met. And I'm honored to have met you and consider you an awesome friend as well. I'm so glad you asked the question of mental resiliency because um, we teach it wrong. Um, a lot of people in this field teach resiliency incorrectly. Um, and I don't say that to start a huge social media fire war. I, I say it because 
when we teach it incorrectly, people believe it incorrectly, and then they erroneously feel that they failed. Um, you should not be learning that resiliency is body armor. Yeah, these are two completely different things. Resistance is body armor. How I train, prepare, I'm ready to come to work. That's the idea of resistance and preparation. Resiliency is what happens when you hit the ground. You have a terrible call. You have a terrible day. You fall, you're affected by it. Resiliency starts then. Resiliency is about bouncing back from traumatic events, not being impervious to them. And I feel like all too often we speak about resilience as though it's some type of body armor and clinicians come to us after being affected by traumatic events and they're like, oh, I'm not resilient. I'm not strong. I'm not this. I'm not that. No, no, no. Resiliency starts now. This is when we show resiliency. Resiliency is bouncing back from that event and moving forward. And it's, it's so spot on that you say it like that, because even whenever like I was getting into EMS, the fresh beginnings just made three years, like I think two weeks ago, what a ride. Um, but somebody told me, they were like, look, you know, you're, you're book smart, you have the potential, but it takes a certain type of person just because of what the calls are and the shifts and all this kind of stuff. So I started my career in EMS with this mentality of like, I have to be hard. I have to be tough. And if I can't make it, I'm going to fake it till I make it. And that's a big part of like, we're talking about with mental resiliency and all of the things that fall under that, the giant umbrella of this topic is that it's not like, to me, it's not that you get these calls and you can't handle it and you fall down, but it's the coping mechanism. It's the way that you deal with these calls in a healthy manner. It's the way that we, I would even say like the mundane shifts, like for me, I get a slew of the black cloud calls for like a week, two weeks straight, something like that. And then it's just nothing but just mundane calls. And I don't know about anybody else. For me, that weighs me down because it makes me feel like I can't do my job because I'm not given the, the, I guess, opportunity to. And so then whenever I'm hit with those calls, I, I go back and forth between like, man, this is going to affect me like this hurts. And then falling back on that baby EMT Alexis, that's like, this is just part of it. You know, no big deal. And if I can't handle it now, how am I going to make a career out of this? It's a, um, it's a really good point that you bring up the idea that, you know, we have this sense in our head of like what the bad call is and what, what this has to be and what this doesn't have to be. And, and we'll get into this here in a minute, as far as like what we actually consider traumatic events um, from, you know, the American psychiatric association, like a place that knows a thing or two about the space between our two ears. It's important to remember that calls and all of that, the mundane, the traumatic and everything in between affect us differently for a million reasons. Are we rested? Are we hydrated? Are life copacetic outside of the ambulance? All of these different reasons. And if we spend a little bit more time focusing on our self-care and how well we're preparing for these shifts, 
and a little bit less time thinking about what this one event is going to do to us 10, 15, 20 years down the road, it's much easier for us to go to the next call, to work the next shift, rather than the all too common phenomenon, especially when we're young in this profession, of thinking that every call needs a tube. And if I'm not putting in humoral heads, IOs, I'm not doing my job, right? And then thinking that like, I'm doomed to this for the next I don't want to say feel guilty of that, but kind of. Um, I do particularly go for a distal tib, whatever, but that's just me. Um, so, okay, getting to the meat and potatoes of, you know, kind of the stuff that we'll be talking about, um, kind of like we already hit on, the idea of dealing with these difficult calls and developing like coping mechanisms for these emotional challenges because as much as some of these calls are mentally challenging they can also be emotionally challenging and i want to put a plug in this it's not that it has to be a bad call where you're dealing with a lifeless body or a certain age group or blood guts and gore there is a call from a few months ago that still kind of hits me a certain way. It's not something I stay at night, like up all night thinking about it. But the way I was like empathetically in that patient's shoes, she was talking about how she she was married for X, Y, Z years. She recently got a divorce, um, had to start over, uh, was struggling financially, X, Y, Z, blah, 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 blah. And like, I literally felt myself in her shoes because I was like, oh my God, like that was, that that's me right now. And again, it's not something that keeps me up all night, but I just let that shift. And I felt so emotionally drained because I just felt that on my back. So before we go into calls and dealing with calls, I do want to clarify and say, it does not have to be a big, hairy, scary call that's going to follow you for the next couple of years. And you see flashbacks and other calls because of it. Like you're talking about, it can be that emotional pull and that empathizing that you have because we're human beings. And if you have any ounce of humanity in you, you have an ounce of empathy just because it's like, even in a car wreck, somebody breaks their arm the paramedic is going to give pain meds, hopefully, because you're not a butthole. And you see that there is a living being that's in pain. Anyways, so <laughs> um, the first one I want to talk about, how, how do you recommend and how do you decompress after a rough call? Like we all have our coping mechanisms and they're not always the healthiest ones. But what are some great examples and what can we do after these either hairy, scary calls or just the emotional ones or the fiscally taxing ones? I love some of the terminology you're using and I want to expand on it a little bit really quickly first. Um, the hairy, scary, the emotional, the physically taxing ones. Um, when we talk about what makes an event traumatic, we all have in our mind, like you said, what that traumatic call would be dead baby, huge car accident, big fire, right? Like we have 
a list of like acceptable traumatic calls. And I want to take just a second and walk you through what the American Psychiatric Association actually recognizes traumatic events to be with the goal of allowing people the space and the grace to be affected by other calls that aren't on that list. And you explained it perfectly. I just want to expand on it a little bit. So a threat that is either real or perceived to your physical or emotional well-being, like Alexis's case that she talked about, a case that is overwhelming, a case that results in intense feelings of fear and lack of control. Again, a little bit of what Alexis was talking about with that connection with their last patient. A case that leaves you feeling helpless. And when I say most importantly, I say one of the most impactful ones is a case that changes the way you understand the world, yourself, or someone else. And this idea of changing your worldview. And I want you to keep that list in the back of your mind because we have this like sentinel event list and even the most grizzly person can get a little bit of support because of like these sentinel events. I really want you to use this other list to recognize why some of the more mundane, some of the more emotionally complex calls can leave us feeling just as stressed out and just as vulnerable as the calls that previously made the list. For those of you that are listening, I just did huge air quotes here. Um, As far as how we decompress from that or how I decompress from that, the first thing you have to do is take a big deep breath and acknowledge that the call made you feel some type of way. You're just not going to get there if you can't say, yeah, that sucked. That was hard. That was emotional. That was physically taxing, what have you. Recognition of how you're feeling is such an important component of this. It can't be overstated. The very next thing I like to do is ensure my fundamentals are in check. Am I hydrated with water? We'll talk about booze and caffeine here in a second. But to start, am I hydrated with water? I don't know where you live, but I think just about anywhere in like the Northern 38, it's 90 some odd degrees most days. I wear a onesie when I practice medicine. It gets hot. It's really, really hot. So hydration is super important. Am I fed the quantity of the calories we consume in crisis matter more than the quality. It's really important to eat a good diet. There's tons of science supporting gut brain health. I'm not negating any of that. But in the moment, eating matters. It helps re-engage our parasympathetic nervous system and helps say, hey, we're not actually fighting a saber-toothed tiger right now. We're not actually in danger and can help spool us down. So rough call, really stressful thing. First thing I do is literally say out loud, that call sucked. I'm feeling some type of way, what have you. Get it out in the ether. It's helpful for you. And it could be really helpful for someone else involved in the call. Hey, Alexis said it. James said it. Maybe I now feel safe to say it too. Hydrate, rest if you can. Those are my big three after every rough call. I want to point out something you said that the the ability to, to recognize and say that affected me. Um, I want to point out also, like, even if per se, you go to the cab and you don't like your partner for whatever reason, or you're just not close to them. I've had those experiences and I literally walked back into the ER, went to the bathroom, looked in the mirror. And either it was to question, like, am I made for this job? Because I just had a huge brain freeze on that one moment. That's happened many times. We're growing and getting better. 
but it's also for that ability to look in the mirror and say to yourself, like, okay, I feel some type of way. Either I'm going to put a pin in this and talk about it later to myself, or right now I'm going to like dissect it. I also want to point out recently, I heard from someone that providers are getting too soft in EMS because we're recognizing that, yeah, some cause effects is. And if you have that mentality, I want you to take a step back and ask yourself if I could have had this 10, 15 years ago, instead of just becoming the salty paramedic or the salty EMT, imagine where you could be now. Anyways, soapbox done. So um, I've actually recently had a call where it involved a certain age range in a pediatric call. It was not a bad call by any means. The baby was totally fine, got an update the next day. It wasn't anything serious at all. No big deal. However, comma, and me and my partner, we have a good trust relationship. We both give each other space to feel things, not just because we're two women, but because we respect each other. Anyways, um, but so like she had brought the stretcher out. She's cleaning everything in the back. And I like, I got, I climbed up into the back and she was like, you know, everything's fine. And I just, I looked, I was like, I hate pediatric calls. And she looked up, she's like, the baby's fine. And I just, I looked at her and I had to go sit in the cab. So she kind of gave me about five-ish minutes. Let me kind of emotionally deal with some things. And she opened the door and she was like, are you good? Yeah. I was like, yeah, yeah, I'm good. And she was like, it wasn't this call, was it? And I was like, no. She's like, do you need to talk about it? And I was like, I'm going to be honest, not right now. But in that moment, it's that thing like you're talking about of like that self-reflection. And I was able to go on for, for the rest of the night. No big deal. It's not something that was hanging over my head, but in other calls where it's that instance where I'm like, I feel some kind of way. Oh, well, too bad. So sad. I have a report to write and this is the job. So I, I feel that 100%. I support that, that ability to freeze, take a breath, mentally take note of how you're feeling. And even if you don't have to, like, you don't have time in that moment at some point, dissect it. So it's not just rolling on to the next call, the next shift, the next time you have that type of call or that age range or that situation, whatever it is. Great point. And the the kind of counterpoint to that is nobody knows you better than you know you. And even though I take the time to recognize that a call may have been challenging and like work hard to like, you know, recharge myself to get to the next call. I'm simultaneously also a notorious 36 hour processor. A lot of the jobs I've worked, I was the primary paramedic or the RSI paramedic or the supervising paramedic or the preceptor, right? I had a lot of other people that I had to look out for and it didn't always allow me the space to go too deep, right? I was able to say, yeah, that call sucked. I need a snack. I need some water. I need a cup of coffee and then I can do another one. And then a day, a day and a half later, I could really take the time and be like, whoo, and actually start to process it. So please don't misconstrue. We're not saying it's time to have a huge diffusing debriefing, right? 
after the end of every call, but sometimes as simple as recognizing that a call kind of got under your skin and saving it for when it's appropriate and safe to dive deeper and figure out what was bothering you about that can be. No, 100%. Yeah. It's it like you're talking about, doesn't have to be this whole event. Sometimes that is just that, like that note, taking that sip of coffee, taking a breath, moving on anyways. So if it's not that rough call, what if it's that rough shift or maybe that call was earlier in the shift, but then you have the rest of the slew of in your 12 hour shift, you have the rest of the 10 calls or in your 24 hour shift, you have all the calls on top of lack of sleep. So when it's that rough shift for whatever reason, it's rough for you. What do we do? Because I have my coping mechanisms either on the way home or when I get home, but in a professional standpoint, like order tips and tricks, how do we get through this stuff? thing that Alexis loosely mentioned, uh, I'm obtaining my master's in clinical psychology and I'm currently a graduate clinical intern uh, working as a counselor up here in Massachusetts, working as a counseling intern, excuse me, here in Massachusetts. Um, so when she's looking for that professional component, that's what she's leaning for. Um, I find a ton of value in separating the shift from the next thing you're going to do right? Paramedics, EMTs, nurses, doctors, you name it, are not always excellent at not bringing it home. And I want to be very intentional about what I'm saying here, because I think incorporating your family and your relationships is a really important part of this. But I mean, like literally bringing that call in the door with you, paramedicking problems at work, paramedicking problems at home, you're, you know, the cabinet is squeaky, and all of a sudden you're treating it like it's an MBC. And everybody's mad and your wife doesn't know like why you're screaming and yelling. It's important to delineate when I'm critical care transport specialist, James, to when I'm graduate clinical intern, James, to when I'm significant other, James, or best friend, James, or buddy and pal, James, right? And acknowledge that those different chapters and pieces of your life are part of your life. So for me, I have the benefit of a fair bit of travel in between my shifts nothing crazy, 45 minutes, an hour, sometimes 30 minutes is like the shortest commute that I have now. I really capitalize on that time to do two things. I let my partner know when I've had a challenging call. And one of the things that Alexis and I can include in uh, the show notes here is my relationship check-in and my relationship action plan and how you can start to collaborate with your partner, your romantic partner about how you can go about this process and what that looks like. So I let them know that I am in need of some decompression, maybe some extra decompression. And then I really take the ride home to hydrate and eat if that's possible and logistically feasible. I genuinely just take the time to breathe and feel what I need to feel. Do I need to crank out some solid music and just get it all out? Do I need to have a relatively quiet ride home and just process what I need? Or do I just need to breathe and put that shift over here and be ready to transition to boyfriend, girlfriend, significant other, right? Whatever you are when you get home, but being deliberate and intentional with those processes are really
want to zone in on something you said of the the break. I how do I word this? I love getting together with other first responders for obvious reasons. We all have the things in common. We all go through the same kind of things. We all have that mutual ground together. But, and to say this as nicely as I can, I try not to do it too often just because if it's already my off day and it's already like, especially those self-care days, I don't want to meet up with these people and talk about work or talk about calls or, you know, have like a mini debrief over whatever it is, or talk about management or talk about whatever it is. Cause it's my off day. And then especially like, it's hard when, if you're like me, you kind of need to pick up a little bit of overtime to maintain your lifestyle instead of subjecting your lifestyle to the job anyways. Um, so it's like, I work an extra shift and then the little bit of time I have off, you know, if, if I hang out with my friends who are in this job, it leads to that. So for me, if I am going to hang out with my friends like that, I literally start off the conversation, start off the dinner table talk, whatever with, Hey guys, not feeling talking about work today. Like what's going on in everyone's lives. Um, so that's like my disconnect. And then I also try to have the mentality of like what I physically do. It sounds kind of stupid. I don't wear my boots in my car. I literally show up for my shift and then put my boots on because for this is just for me, I guess. When I get back into my car, I take my boots off and I put them in the back seat. And like for me, I have to have that physical removing of the shift, if that makes sense. Like that's that's my ability to kind of like cut off where the shift ends, if that makes sense. Those of us that are listening to this can't see me like losing my mind over here as she's doing it. I think um, like a physical decoupling is so, so important. Um, those of us that were providers during COVID um, got a really good look at that because we would do exactly that, right? We would literally take off our flight suits, our uniforms, what have you, at the station, at work, before we got in our house. And we did it for a very different reason. But the intentionality behind it and what we can learn from it is great. These are my work clothes. These are my work boots. This is the physical embodiment of another part of myself. Not the sum total, not the whole. This is one part of myself. And by taking off those boots, that uniform, what have you, you're just reminding your body. I'm not in that space right now. I don't have these boots on. I'm not wearing my uniform. I am not a paramedic right now. I'm Alexis. I'm James. I'm Boomer. I'm whoever. I like that. Thanks. It's also mostly because I just, I get tired of wearing them. I have some new boots that I... 20 out of 10 recommend if you want the names of them, how to get them hit me up. They've changed my life. I wish I was exaggerating when I say that anyways. Um, 
So something I do want to touch on. Can we talk about the dangers of one-upping trauma, like in these calls? Because for instance, one thing that has still stuck with me, and it's been like, I want to say maybe a month ago, had a call or had a shift, had a late call. It was pretty extensive. Didn't finish my report. We have 24 hours till it like has to be finished. I try to leave every shift with having all reports done because I don't want to come back the next day. However, comma, this was not that moment. I'm sorry to getting off an hour and a half late. Done. So go up to the station the next day. And like I have these 12 leads. I have my notes that I have to write on calls, whatever. And I just have them laid out in front of me. I have to start the report, do all the things. And this seasoned medic was sitting on the couch behind me. And he was like, oh, that looks interesting. What was that? So I give him like a brief rundown. And I'm like, dude, like my black cloud streak, it just has not stopped. This is on like shift number six. Every shift we've had like an intense call, whatever. And he's like, oh, oh, that's nothing. A few Christmases ago, back in the day, whatever. He was like, uh, one Christmas, one year, I had five cardio arrests on a Christmas day. So like, yeah, I get what you're saying, but man, put yourself in my shoes. And I'm just deflated. I'm like, okay, yeah, I'm sorry. I can't amount to that. I don't want it, but gosh, golly, I guess I have nothing to complain about. I'll just uh, put this under my belt and call it a day, pal. So <laughs> can we talk? about that, about the danger of when someone's talking about a call, not having another one in the back of your head that you're going to express and slash or wearing these calls like badges of honor. I don't know how else to express that besides saying that like, you know, you have this new hire that either that you're training or that you're passing by them or whatever it is. And they ask a question and then you spout off some horrific call and then tell them like, cause this happened to me. Oh, if you can't handle that, you can't handle this job. Or even in paramedic school, having these ridiculous scenarios and situations and then following it up with, well, this is what happened to me. Like, Hey, thanks. I'll uh, I'll go sit in the back of the class and do better, I guess. So the rule is simple. If someone is telling you about a bad call and the call that you're about to reference isn't going to help that individual be a better clinician. Oh, I see a handful of 12 leads here. I had a wicked STEMI about a month and a half ago. And it was a fantastic representation of an evolving right-sided MI. Let me grab those strips for you so we can talk about it. Doesn't matter. You're not giving clinical advice off of a call or sharing a funny anecdote or just swapping stories with no stress or no one-upping. It doesn't matter. The most empathetic version of me possible can say the old school ideology of doing that was to help build a little bit of resilience, right? If you think that was tough, this is tougher. 
in a way to try to prepare you for what's to come. Uh, it just doesn't work. It is invalidating. It makes everybody feel crappy. It makes you look like a jerk. It's just it's just not worth it. If it doesn't have any clinical acumen behind it, it shouldn't be done. And I've been in this job for a long time. I'm very guilty of it too. It was a younger, more naive version of myself that was really just trying to peacock and show you that like I'd been to the show, I'd done the thing. Oh yeah, well I did two dead babies, right? Like it, it is your way of trying to reflect that. And I, I want to assume that this provider had the best of intentions and was really trying to like help grizzle you a little bit, right? Like help build some callus, but look at what it did, right? It deflated you. You're like, I'm going to sit over here and not do the thing anymore. And I was really trying to like reach out and what you'd like to see a leader do, what you like to see a senior leader do is acknowledge that and say, man, those calls suck. That's a grind. I hope you got some rest. Is there any way I can help you and really create a space where we can foster and grow? And remembering that that takes time and the longer you've been in this profession, it takes a lot of unlearning and recognizing that the way that you were precepted, the way that you were oriented, the way that senior people treated you when you were junior may or may not have been the best way. And can we break that cycle and say, no, I am going to be the best FTO. I am going to be the best preceptor. I am going to be this thing. And I want to, I want to highlight slash clarify something that kind of like you talked about, you can bring up calls, you can bring up events and those, oh, well, one time I did this in a way to relate, like you're talking about, but also at the company I used to work at, um, I was an FTO and my partner was an FTO. I'm not going to say we didn't sign up for it, but we literally just one day had this new hire with us. And we're like, what are you here for? He's like, oh, I'm with uh, whoever and I'm a new hire. And we're like, okay, who are you looking for? And they're like, well, I'm looking for you guys. Didn't sign up for this, whatever. Um, So we were just kind of getting like a background of like, you know, why'd you join EMS? What's your goals? What do you want to do? blah, 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 blah. What can you do? All that. And he started kind of talking about like, you know, I I can't wait for this type of call and I can't wait to do this. And I hope we get this today and all those things, the things. And so my partner kind of was like sharing with him a couple of instances of calls. He wasn't going into details. He wasn't over sharing. Like we're talking about wanting one upping stuff, but it was more of like this, I want to say a precautionary tale of, hey, I know you want to do these things. And I've done a couple of them. Here's the repercussions of them. And also want to add, sometimes in these tough calls, like the one I talked about, it, it wasn't just that it was tough, but it's mentally challenging. It's not that those are the big, hairy, scary calls or it, it's the things that weigh you down. These are also those instances where you get to practice what you've learned. You get to practice what you've studied and you get to do the things. And that's that call is one of those for me. It's not that it was a thing where I'm like, oh God, I did this and I had to do this. And oh my God, and this, and now I'm going to stay up all night. I was pumped. I'm just going to be honest. (laughs) So 
also, I want to clarify that, that these tough calls we're talking about, not every call is going to be tough. Not every shift is going to be tough. You may get those tough calls once in a blue moon, or if you're just that magnet, you may get them all the time. Or if you're a white cloud, you don't get them at all, whatever it is. It's not that every single shift, every single call, like you talked about Boomer, Boomer, I'm sorry, that was weird. Um, It's not that you're having to implement all this every single call. It's just the the arsenal in your tool in your toolbox that if when you need it, this is here. I can't I can't agree more. I like that. You know the knowing knowing when to expand on your experience and knowing when to talk about those calls that went well, calls that didn't go well, calls where you did a lot of stuff, calls where you didn't do a lot of stuff is helpful. And again, refer back to that list I shared, right? So that that newbie that right along walked into your shop, right? You guys are going to have a relatively benign call and it's going to be very, very different experience for that person than it is for you and your partner. Right? There's going to be periods of helplessness, hopelessness, fear, right? That you simply don't share because you've been doing the thing for a little while. So recognition of even what is the most benign to some can be really affected by someone else. So I want to touch on what the obvious thing that I preach on the podcast and obviously Boomer, you're a huge fan of. It is so crucial to have a therapist or someone that you go to, to talk to. And I'm not just talking about in this job. I'm talking about all the other aspects in your life. That's honestly, they spill into the job. It's not that every patient you have to like see yourself as them, or if it's a husband and wife and they got into some kind of argument, you have to like put yourself in their shoes and remember when you had that argument with your significant other, nothing like that. But um, you also have these outside aspects that even if you're able to disconnect as soon as you start up the ambulance or the fire truck or you put on your scrubs, whatever you do, there is still that little part that's carried on because you are one human being with one mind and you cannot literally disconnect like you may compartmentalize, you know, I've heard this saying that some people are waffles and some people are spaghetti. Some people have these little boxes that everything fits in. And some people just have it all jumbled together and you can't just separate all the spaghetti, but we're, we're partially both. So anyways, the obvious go-to is you need a therapist. And if you don't have a therapist, you need somebody that has some type of training that you can go to emphasis on the training. It is important to have your friends that you can call. It's important to have your mentor that you can call, but you also need somebody that has professional training, whatever. So I want to touch on what can providers do that don't want to go to sit on a couch and have somebody look at them with a notebook, clipboard, you know, no offense, Boomer. They have the khakis with the nice shoes. They do the thing where they put their ankle on their knee. They kind of sit back, 
you know, they listen to what you say and then they add something in the mix of it. What is something that could be done for those people? Appreciate you like zooming in on the ascension. I didn't know how you were able to see me in khakis and <laughs> nice shoes doing the thing. Um, I, I think first and foremost, if somebody doesn't want to go to therapy, my only question is why, right? And and I, for one, while I do completely agree that that having a therapist is just as important as having a primary healthcare provider, right? They are in the same light, they are in the same blush, they are just as important as one another. You tell me you don't want to go to therapy. My question is why? Because you can often distill a lot. Well, I didn't like this talk therapy nonsense. Okay, well, there's 17 different. I'm placating here, right? I'm, I'm being a little playful, but there's a, a lot of different types of therapy that you can do. Well, their office is really far away. Okay, there are providers that do telehealth and virtual sessions. Well, I didn't like this guy, I didn't like that guy, I didn't have a good experience. And I, I just like to drill down on that to see if we can find someone who is a good fit. Um, there are a plethora of culturally competent first responder and healthcare provider focused therapists out there. I am not the only one. I want to work hard to be the best, but I am not the only one in the mix. And it is important to know that you can be choosy. Um, the reason that I really advocate to finding a therapist sooner rather than later is because just like everything else in healthcare, there's a bit of a backlog right now. And I don't want to see clinicians wait until they're in crisis and need a therapist ASAP and then realize there's a three, four, five week long wait. I'd much rather you start to make those connections and work through that now. If after all of that, you are like, nope, it's still not for me. It's not my speed. I would remember that there are first responder focused crisis lines that exist that you can have in your queue. Um, there are less trained individuals that you can speak to. There are peer supporters. There are individuals that just run non-official like group sessions, right? That are group kind of peer-based things. There, there are other options for you to start to decompress with than therapy. But again, I'd really start by asking why you don't want to go to therapy. And to that end, my inbox is open. If you want to talk to somebody who knows a thing or two about starting down the therapy journey and knows a thing or two about working in the pre-hospital and at a hospital environment, and you want to try to bounce some of those questions off me, I'd be happy to. I really would. I think that it is always your right to make that decision, but I do want to make sure that people are as informed as possible while they're making that decision. So Boomer, like you're saying, the find a therapist sooner rather than later. I, for the longest time, I had this one therapist. He was kind of like a family friend. I knew him for years. I called him one day and I'm like, Hey, my guy, um, I'm not doing good at all right now. Like what is your availability? Thankfully he had something super soon. So we talked a couple of things over whatever. And he's like, look, we need to do a couple of sessions. We've got to talk about these things. It wasn't even job related. It was a lot of events outside of my job that did start to creep in. So saw him for a couple of weeks. And then I was like, hey, my guy, I'm good. I'm cured. I'm fine. He was like, I, I think we should give it a little bit of time. And I was like, nah, man, we're going to 10 seven. I'm good. I'm good. Fast forward about a month <laughs> and I call him. I'm like, hey, uh, I, I need help. Thankfully, he was able to pencil me in, 
that happened about two more times in the span of like four or five ish months, just because of things that were going on. And so finally he was like, look, cause we're doing all this like telehealth webcam, that kind of thing. He was like, look, dude, appreciate you. I'm proud of your growth. I think you're doing great, but you've got to meet somebody consistently. And I was like, dude, I'm, I'm good now. He's like, okay, this pattern's really cute. So you need to find somebody that you can see them regularly. So when you're not good, it's not this thing of having to rush to find somebody to talk to. You already have that schedule time and you already have that source of like the hotline or these other lines that you can call if the emergency crisis arises. But if you can just hold on to that next session, depending on how frequently you see them, because I know like we do it as a society, but I feel like it's even more prevalent in this field. It's like we just treat this trauma like a bobbit. Like one, you suppress it, then you ignore it, and then you twist it to mock it, and then you do whatever to deflect it. You have all these options of how you're going to get through it. And then you implement the heavy amount of people that deal with addiction. I'm not talking just uh, alcohol or whatever. substance abuse, that kind of thing. We can also touch on caffeine. We can also touch on as much as all of them, these toxic social media pages that even though they're funny and they're EMS related, and sometimes it's good to scroll through and see like one of those funny memes. And it's like, oh, I can relate to that. But the negativity with it is it's intense. Anyways, so so I highly recommend therapy of some sort. Like Boomer talked about, if you don't want to go sit in front of somebody and go to that kind of therapy, there are sources out there. And the big takeaway is you're not alone. And you don't have to deal with this stuff by yourself. You don't have to, and this is kind of right now being transparent, to baby EMT, even baby paramedic Alexis, you don't have to sit in the shower and stress yourself over a call or something about management that's bothering you. Or am I going to remember this type of medication for the next call? Or gosh, golly, I forgot to do whatever during that call and just letting it build and manifest until you start tearing yourself down, you can get that out. Even if it's something to where maybe you feel like your significant other won't understand. Maybe you feel like you're going to get judged by the other providers that you know. There are a plethora of resources out there. But ultimately, like a stay fit for duty teaches, if you can't see it, pointing to my shirt. Number one, it's okay to not be okay. And also it's okay to be okay. It's okay to look at yourself in the mirror and say like, I'm mentally okay right now. I'm implementing all the resources. I'm doing all the things supposed to do. And this job isn't weighing me down right now. And that's the goal. Second biggest thing, like I said, you're not alone. You, you may feel like 
that, you know, however, however you're feeling, you may feel like you're the only person on this planet that feels this way. And while we are all unique, there are millions, billions, trillions, I'm not good with math, people on this planet. I'm sure someone else feels that way. And there are resources and professionals and friends that can help you out with whatever it is. Absolutely. Um, I like that. Alexis hit both of our points. Uh, it's okay to not be okay. It's okay to be okay. If you're doing all the things, if you're taking good care of yourself, if your homework life is in balance and things are fine, great. Fantastic. Check on a buddy. See if you can be helpful to somebody else. Um, there's ups, there's downs, there's left, there's rights, there's everything in between. And just like Alexis very bravely pointed out when she talked about her alignment in therapy, right? I'm good. I'm not. I'm good. I'm not. We expect this up and down. It's just part of the human experience. And understanding that is really important. It's the boomer. Um, that's all I got. Do you have anything else you want to add? Tips, tricks? life advice, what you got? We covered a lot today and it was awesome. Um, remember to take care of yourself with the same fire and tenacity that you take care of your patients. Just shine a little bit of that light onto yourself. It will pay you tremendous dividends in the long run and it will help make you a better provider in the long run. And that's the end goal. At the end of the day, and if you don't have this mindset, you might need to, you know, take a break, take a vacation or find a new career field. If you're not doing this for the betterment of your patient, you're not going to do anything good. Like that's just the end of it. Like if you're not working hard for your patient, there's the door or there's a vacation or whatever you need. So like Boomer said, you got to take care of your patient, but it's the same mindset of like on an NBC or those dangerous calls. You can't make a patient out of yourself. So you got to take care of yourself. Alexis, thank you so much for having me on. It's always a pleasure to be on 22 with the lips. It's awesome to see how much you've grown from your own pod to combining with master your medics and really growing in that space. If anything that I said here resonated with you, please follow me on social my Instagram is at stay underscore fit, the number four duty. I'm on Instagram, Facebook, threads, or you can do it the easy way and just head to stay fit, the number four duty.org. Come to my website, look at our merchandise, look at the speaking arrangements, gigs, teaching and stuff that I do and follow me on social that way. Thank you very much for your time, Alexis. I really appreciate it. And I hope everybody has a great night. Appreciate you, Boomer. And as I wrap up every single episode. So with that,